Well, good morning, Bethel. Uh, We are finishing up our series on marriage today. Uh, This is the third part of the end of marriage. And uh, uh, at our household, my wife got to practice uh, one of those vows that we made many years ago in sickness and in health. Uh, I got my third wave of sickness here in about six weeks. So whoever had the uh, stomach flu that shared with me, bless you for that. Um, so it's been kind of a rough week. We'll do our best this morning to, uh, to hang tight here. But as we have a guest room in our house, and anyone who gets uh, anything like the stomach flu gets sequestered to the guest room down in the basement. And after a couple of days in the dungeon, I heard footsteps coming down the stairs and thought, oh, here comes my bride to check on me. And I heard the distinct sound of Lysol being sprayed on the door. (laughs) And then steps retreating upstairs. So we have some work to do on that. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help and then uh, we'll dive into this, all right? Father, not one of us here is strong in and of ourselves. We confess that, and uh, we look to you, Lord, for strength now, whether it's to deliver a message, or to hear a message, or to live it out. We ask for strength that comes by your Spirit. We look to your word now, Lord, and we remember the prayer of our Savior, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We ask that the truth, Lord, would penetrate deep into our hearts, and have its way with us, and shape us, and make us into what you would have us to be. Give us attentiveness now to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We've been working through about six questions in this series on the end of marriage, and this particular, uh, this last last one in the series here, we're going to be talking about some of practical tools on marriage. I brought some of my own my favorite tools from home. This, I've, I've already shown you this one many times. This is my beloved hatchet. It was a Christmas gift a couple of years ago. And it's still razor sharp. I love this. It's a Grandsfors Brux hatchet. And if you know what that is, you know this is prized. And um, I've cut myself many a time with this hatchet. It's good. This is another favorite tool of mine. Very practical. The big old crescent wrench, the big old one. You know, this week I got to replace uh, or take a couple propane tanks down to be filled up. Nice to have one with some leverage, you know, not the little one. The, well, this is as big as I've got. Some of you, I'm sure, have a larger one. And then, of course, a hammer, and not just any hammer, but every now and then you need this hammer. You need this hammer when the project didn't go well, and you just need to destroy the project and start <laughs> over. And that's why I like this. These are some of my favorite tools uh, in, my, uh, in my workbench. And uh, this morning I want to talk about just some favorite tools or practical tools uh, with regard to marriage. I certainly can't address each one, but I want to go to those ones which are everyday. They're powerful. Uh, they're effective. The ones that we should be reaching for regularly. And I want to remind us too just of the definition uh, that we're working on our working definition of marriage as we proceed through the series here. Uh, And that is this. Marriage is essentially a covenant of self-giving. It's a covenant. Covenants are enduring. They're long-lasting. They're not contracts which change and are adjusted 
It's a covenant, a covenant of self-giving. It's made in three directions. If you remember, we talked about it. It's made, first of all, to God. And then it's made to one another. And it's made in front of witnesses. These are the three directions in which this covenant is, is made. And it's entered into to achieve a God-ordained purpose. And we looked, a lot, looked at a lot of the, uh, the purpose aspects last week. And so today we're going to be looking at what are some practical tools for marriage? That's our fifth of six questions. What are some practical tools for marriage? And the first is this, that marriage needs steady maintenance. Big surprise, right? No one saw that coming. No one's ever heard that before. We know this, and this morning I suspect in this regard I'm not telling us anything new, but reminding us what we know and hopefully animating us and compelling us to act on what we know. Uh, When we first fall in love, uh, we do those things. We do so many things to simply capture their attention, right? We actually call them just to talk. Uh, We spend time with them and even money. We go on dates, real dates that had thought and planning and purpose. Uh, We set aside time for them. Uh, We impress them with feats of strength, right? Uh, Yesterday I had a low moment and Aiden had a high moment where he was the one who got the salsa jar open. I didn't. (laughs) So... We've got a little battle going on at home. We work up the courage to say nice things. And then we actually say them to the one that we love. We write notes. We're romantic. We're affectionate. We do these things to draw their attention. And then a couple years into marriage and a couple kids later, it's not that we ever chose to stop doing those things, but somehow we've fallen out of practice. And we somehow become partners in this business of raising kids and running a house. And the marriage has almost evaporated or the intimate relationship is hard to find at times. This is common among us. This is common. Maybe to different degrees, but this is common among men. And again, I don't think I'm saying anything profound here when I make the statement that we can't let our, our love for one another go on autopilot. That it has to be maintained. Love has to be fed. It has to be nurtured. Because the grind of life will simply want to get in the way of it. There are plenty of commands in scripture which speak to the enduring nature of our love. And I'll just quickly highlight a few of them. You have them in your notes. 1 Peter 3.7 says, To live, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Ecclesiastes 9.9 says to enjoy the wife whom you love all of the days of your life. Proverbs 5.18 similarly says enjoy the wife of your youth. Malachi 2.14 and 15 commands us to guard our marriage covenant with the wife of our youth. And so what we find, what's common in these passages, if you didn't pick up on it, is the enduring nature of this covenant. It persists, it goes forward, it goes on. And when you couple that with the scripture's expectation that not only would it go on, but that we would enjoy its going on, then it leaves us with the obvious implication 
that we must be making regular investments into this relationship, nurturing it and growing it to sustain our love. The encouragement that I would have too is that even if the feelings of love in your relationship, in your marriage, even if those feelings of love have cooled, or should you come into a particular time in life when they do, I would remind you of this. It can be rejuvenated by actions of love. Sometimes our actions of obedience come first and the emotions follow. And that is true in marriage as well. And so I'll just throw out a few really simple, this is nothing terribly profound but what we know. I'll throw out a few simple applications that you may need to consider in your own marriage, in your own life by way of um, investment and maintenance. One might be simply this, have a date night. Declare it. Say it's Friday night. We're going on a date. It's expected. It's presumed. It will happen. Discuss your relationship with each other. I'm amazed at how many couples just go through the logistical steps of a relationship without ever talking about their relationship. They don't talk with one another about how it's going or how they're doing. Be willing to ask, what are our marital strengths and celebrate those and affirm them? And also be willing to ask, where do you think we're vulnerable? And take time discussing those things together. Men, I would challenge you, keep dating your wife. Pursue her as the love of your life, as one that God has gifted to you. Even if your dates, like ours, end up at Fred Meyer's to come home with a gallon of milk. I swear, if we go on a date, you're going to see us at Fred's. Just telling you. That's how it happens. <laughs> In fact, we've run into many of you there doing the same thing. So, um, Wives, can I encourage you, continue to make yourself beautiful for your husband. Once was so important to draw his eye. Is it still important to you? And men, when your wife does this, notice. (laughs) Say something. Um, Continue to engage in fun and new experiences together. Uh, Don't just go on autopilot and do the same old things. Start a project together. Work together on something. Serve together in some way. There's a couple in this church that each year comes up to me and says, Pastor Eric, again, we would like to do something generous to help somebody at Christmas time. Is there somebody that's in need that that we could shop for? And together, they put together a Christmas package for someone they barely know. Uh, And that's one of the things they do together as a couple. That's good stuff. Um, I want to give a couple specific cautions with regard to this idea of maintenance. As I look at many marriages within our church, within our culture, I find two really, really common weaknesses, almost universal. And that is this. Men, you need to stay engaged in your wife's needs. Engagement is the word that comes to mind. I find so often that what happens is as life gets busy with work, with kids, house, whatever, that we fall into this divide and conquer mode. You know what I'm talking about? You have these responsibilities. I have these. 
and pretty soon there's very little interaction between the two. And we just, we just fall into these patterns and these roles. But there's very little relationship. Men, you need to make sure that when you come home, that you're engaging your wife. Ask questions. Know what's going on. Care. Invest yourself in her and what matters to her. Be engaged. Don't disengage. And my caution to women in this same line of of sort of what happens in this divide and conquer role is that women, whether you know it or not, very many husbands actually feel abandoned by their wives by the amount of energy poured into the kids. When once a husband was primary in her life, somehow he feels kicked to the curb when kids come along. This is common. And we simply cannot allow even our children, whom we love so much, to be an intruder in our marriage. Husbands and wives, one of the best gifts that you can give to your kids, hear me, hear me very clearly now, one of the best gifts you can give to your kids is that they would know that you love one another even more than you love them. I know that's a provocative statement, but that's what your kids need to see. They need to see that your spouse is your first love aside from Christ. It goes, Jesus Christ, your spouse, your children. If children have eclipsed your spouse, you have a different sort of affair or intruder going on in your marriage. That's the right sequence of things. That's the order of things. And that's the way we need to prioritize them. So marriage needs maintenance. Secondly, marriage needs mentors. And you might even say it this way. You are being mentored by someone or by some people. The question is, who is it and what's their influence? That's really the question. Hebrews 13 says, marriage should be honored by all. Everyone should speak of it in an affirming way, should respect it, should navigate themselves around a marriage in right and appropriate ways. And so, men and women, we have to think about those people that we're spending our time with. Ladies, if you're gathering around with a bunch of girlfriends who just like to get together for husband bashing, you're being mentored in a negative way. And men, same thing. If you're just getting together with guys who speak disparagingly of women and of marriage and of your covenant, You're being mentored in a negative way. I had an opportunity this last week to call a good friend of mine. His name is Josh. He lives back in Washington. And it had been a a while since we've talked. And I just asked him, hey, Josh, how you doing? You know, how's your marriage? How's Heather? And uh, we got talking. It was so sweet just to hear him talk about uh, how blessed he is uh, to have her in his life. And to hear him speak about he and I were good friends uh, as he was getting ready to get married, and, and I was helping him plot and scheme how he would win this girl to be his bride. So we were returning to some old conversations. But it was um, really fun and sweet to hear him talk about uh, how being a sacrificial, servant-hearted husband has yielded such great fruit in his life and his marriage to this day. Uh, and it was just really sweet. And you think, yeah, those are the kinds of people I want to spend time with. Those people that will speak well of marriage. Daniel Fuller has said that example is the strongest rhetoric. 
And Mark Twain says the same thing a little more provocatively. There are a few things harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. We need to put people around us like this that will speak well of their marriage and our marriage and affirm us and that will honor marriage. And so make sure you're spending time with these kinds of people. This past week while I was homesick and kind of preparing for the message, I thought, you know what, I've got, I've got a little extra time here at home to read and study. And so I, I picked up the book of Song of Solomon and just read it through. Man, that's a saucy book, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> pick that up sometime if you, if you haven't read that recently. If you're married, I guess. Uh, if you're not, maybe leave it alone for a while. But there's a, there's a fascinating structure to the book, too. There's, there's kind of three primary voices. We have the, um, we have the, uh, the male figure in the, in the poem who is, the, who is described as the lover. And the female figure, the, the young Shulamite woman, is described as the beloved. But then there's this third category, this third group known as friends or others. And their voice in the poem is interesting as you see it delineated when it's, when it's shown. And what they do is they speak supportively and speak well of the couple's love for one another. And it's just, it just kind of piqued my interest this this last week as I was reading through it. So here in, in the first chapter, in verse 4, the young Shulamite woman makes this you know, quite provocative statement. She says, Take me away with you. Let's, let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Oh, yeah. And then the voice of the others speak up, and they say this, We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Easy just to read past those things, but what we see is that the community of friends who know of their love and their relationship affirm it and speak well of it and encourage it. And it's just kind of beautiful to see that that's how the peer group is is speaking of it. We need voices in our lives and in our marriages who affirm and speak life into it as well. And I'll tell you this, over the years, Amy and I, as we've grown in our relationship, we've had times where we've, we've had tough times, and we've had fights, and there's been times where we've been stuck on an issue, and we haven't been able to maybe resolve it easily ourselves, and there's been times where we have asked for help from other people, from pastors, from friends, uh, and, and we're careful about that, and who we let into our marriage, it's not, you know, it's not for everybody to comment on, but there's been times where we've said, uh, let's go talk to so-and-so about this particular issue and get some, some coaching. And so I want to encourage you, uh, if you're at a point in your marriage where you're stuck on something and you're struggling, be willing, please be willing to call one of the pastors. We're happy to listen and to provide some help. Call one of the elders and their wives and see if they'll get together with you for dinner and talk through what the issue is. Or a couple whom you respect. Or a Christian counselor. Don't just let something sit there and go unresolved. I would also encourage you, just by way of practical tools, uh, Pastor Keith's going to be teaching a Sunday school class on marriage here in a couple of weeks. We're following up the sermon series with that. Hopefully that will yield, uh, lend itself to some more discussion and question and answer. So we want to make you aware of that too. Third practical tool for marriage here. So not only does it need steady maintenance, it needs mentors, 
marriage is much easier, I can't say this one loudly enough, is much easier when each person is maturing in Christ. Much easier when each person is maturing in Christ. Um, in other words, if you can picture it this way, picture a bit of a triangle here with Christ at the top of this triangle and the husband and the wife at the base of the triangle. If each of them is targeting to grow towards Jesus, they are naturally growing towards one another. It's just a natural phenomenon of discipleship. Want to grow closer to your spouse, grow closer to Christ and encourage their spiritual growth as well. Uh, as husband and wife... I think that's the, the best gift that you can give to your spouse is that you yourself are in a growing relationship with Jesus. Um, and I know at, at times it can be difficult to know even what, uh, what that looks like or how that looks that we, that we would come together closer in a relationship with one another. But if we give ourselves to growing closer to Jesus, that will happen naturally. And I also would remind you that as Christians, we have resources that, quite frankly, the world doesn't have for a successful marriage. First of all, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us that convicts us of sin and empowers us for obedience. And that's a resource the world doesn't have. We have the scriptures, which is a common authority in our life uh, that speaks about how marriage is to work and how life is to be lived. I cannot imagine being a non-Christian, marrying another person, saying, I commit my life to be devoted to you. I don't even know what you're going to look like or be like in 10 years. At least when we're marrying a Christian, one who is deeply devoted to Christ, we can say, yeah, the future's uncertain, but I know who you're pursuing. And we'll pursue him together. And that is a hope that the unbelieving world does not have. So we have, the, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the scriptures, and we have Christian community around us to help us and encourage us and to model what this looks like as well. And finally, we have the person of Christ to imitate. The similar goal which naturally brings us together as we're disciples of him first and foremost. And to, to you singles, I want to speak to this pretty sharply this morning. <coughs> and that's this. One of the best tools that you can give yourself for marriage, and I hate to even call it a tool, it's just a necessity, it's not optional, is to make sure you marry a growing Christian. When you're dating and you're looking for a spouse, don't just look for someone who is willing to profess to be a Christian. You look for someone who loves God more than they love you. And if you can't see that, they're not for you. Don't look for someone who's willing to just claim the label so they can land you. I don't care how lonely you are, you'll be more disappointed in a lifetime that will feel like bondage. Where out of the love of your light, you will be praying for their soul, but you will be unequally yoked and strained for the remaining years. You don't want that. You look for a Christian who loves the Lord and whose passion for him is unmistakable. That's a person who can love you well. 2 Corinthians 6 addresses this with absolute clarity. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? 
What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? We don't say this to speak ill of non-Christians. We desire their salvation. But we obey the scriptures and we love our Lord and his commands. Fourth tool of marriage here. Marriage needs good communication and conflict resolution. I want to tell you this. I think, I think if you take two Christians and you gave them these two skills, I, I really think you could have a pretty harmonious relationship. They're just, I, there's no way around. They're, they're just the nuts and bolts of marriage. This is the lens through which marriage is lived. And uh, I, I was looking at this and I'm just thinking, boy, where do you go to, uh, you know, from the scriptures to show that this is in fact the case? And I'll be honest with you, hard, hard to just, just take this directly from chapter and verse. I'm more or less extrapolating from what I see in the scriptures and from what I know of God. Our God is a communicator. That's his nature. And we're made in his image. Uh, Hebrews tells us in, in uh, the first verse, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. In other words, our God has communicated a lot to us about him. Think of all of the ways God has revealed himself and disclosed himself to us. And the way that the world is made in the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, in the person of Christ, our God is a communicator. He reveals. He makes clear. He wants us to know. And I think we can learn something from that, that we ought to be good communicators as well, especially in our marriage. One of the things that really stood out to me as I was reading through Song of Solomon, again, back to this saucy book, uh, this past week as I was reading through it, one of the things that stood out to me was how passionately and romantically the man and the woman spoke to one another. How tenderly they spoke to one another. Um, in other words, they didn't just presume that the other person knew how they felt. They said it. And they said it in colorful and beautiful language. And they said it again and again and again and again throughout the book. Um, and I'm going to read some of it for you. Uh, so here it is in chapter 4. And this is just after speaking. This is just after the, um, the male figure speaking of the woman. He's speaking of the beauty of her eyes and of her hair and then her teeth, which, you know, who knew? I didn't know. And then her neck and her lips and even her breasts. And then he goes on to say this in verse 7. In a summary statement, he says, You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. And he goes on in verse 9. He says, You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice? This is a couple in love, yeah? And they communicate to one another about their love and they use words and they use beautiful words and beautiful images to do so. And 
he doesn't, and both of them, neither of them speak just of the physical attributes of the other, but in verse 10, we see them affirming how pleasing is our love. They rejoice in the goodness of the relationship itself. So let me give some specific encouragement to you couples. Take time to talk with one another. I mean, like real time. Um, Don't let the kids interrupt you. Easier said than done, I know. Uh, One of the things that Amy and I do when we kind of get home from our different different things we're doing throughout the day and we get home about the same time usually it's in the kitchen um, we kick the kids out and they have all kinds of things i don't understand this problem in my homework how do i do whatever i got to be somewhere else we just get out of here we're talking right now and we try to prioritize that time and we teach them they cannot interrupt because our conversation is more important than their conversation right now and that's one of the things we try to prioritize for our kids take time to talk Husbands and wives. I would also say watch how you communicate. Uh, Technology is fantastic. I love text messages. I really do. Um, I love that Amy can say, I need you to go to the store and pick up some groceries. Great. Text me the list. Right? I love that. I can go right through. You know, sometimes she'll even send me a picture. This one, not that one. You know, just to make sure that it's Eric proof. And um, that's great. But, but you notice how much texting becomes a part of your communication every day and how little actually gets transferred. That's just logistics. If your communication is primarily through technology and you're only nuancing it with emojis, you're failing in your communication. More than 90% of communication is nonverbal and there's not enough emojis on the planet to get that across. Yesterday after uh, we had, we've, I've had three bouts of sickness. Uh, Eleanor's got strep throat. And Gus has something else going on too. And um, I came upstairs from the dungeon to find my wife upset. And I just asked, you know, what's going on? And, and she broke and she was emotional. And you know what? If we were doing that conversation over the phone, it would have failed. I could see her face and I can read her lip. And when she gets upset, her lip gets tight, and I know it's time to be quiet and just wait. I've learned that. And she, over time, opened up, and she expressed what was going on, her frustrations, and she didn't need me to fix a thing. She just needed me to listen. You can't do that on your phones or an email. You need to be present, and you need to see your spouse's face. Listen well. If you don't understand something, ask for clarification. Restate it. Did I hear you right? Is this what you were trying to communicate? What I hear you saying is, use these kinds of tools to to get at the issue. Uh, Second part of this one here was not just that we need good communication, but we need conflict resolution. Christians should be better at conflict resolution than anybody on the planet. We have a God who sent his son to resolve our conflict with sin to resolve our unreconciled relationship with him. How can we be poor at this? How can we shy away from this? How can we not have skills with this? Ephesians 4 says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. The word there is topos. It's don't give the devil any real estate 
in your life. If you have unresolved conflict in any relationship, especially your, your marriage, you're basically saying, hey, Satan, right here, that square foot's yours. Welcome. That's what unresolved conflict is in your life. And the Bible says, don't do it. You've got to address issues. You've got to keep small things small. You've got to get good at conflict resolution. Uh, the good thing is, if you do it when it's small, uh, that's the cheapest price you're going to pay, right? Let it swell. Let it go on. It's just going to get bigger. It's just going to get more costly. What are some signs of successful marriage? Uh, I'm going to try to identify just three fairly quickly here. The first is this, uh, that it endures, that it endures until death separates. Matthew 19, if you'll turn there, (coughs) starting at verse 3. It says, some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. We've heard this verse before, haven't we? A few times. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, there's some interesting things going on here. First of all, we see that the religious leaders brought these questions because they were really looking for an answer. They were testing Jesus. They were trying to pin him down to an unpopular side of a debate that was going on at the time. There were at least two schools of thought, and I think even a couple of more uh, going on at the time with regard to uh, marriage and divorce. Um, Two different uh, rabbis had kind of come down with different positions and had their own followings. And one basically taught that you could only divorce in the, sen- in the case of infidelity. The other taught that you could divorce for any reason. And that was sort of the title, an any reason divorce, which is what the question is being asked here. You can see how the modern translation tries to capture this issue by saying any and every reason. In other words, they're asking, do you agree with this teaching that you can divorce for any reason? Do you see what I'm getting at here? It's not that they were coming up to him and saying, Jesus, is there any reason under heaven why someone could divorce? They're saying, in a sense, do you agree with this any reason teaching of divorce? But they're trying to pin him down to a side and trap him in this. And his answer is very clear. He shows marriage is no contract. It's a covenant. It's enduring And he speaks again of this teaching in Genesis 2 that a husband and wife have become one. And what God has joined, let no one separate. And I think this is absolutely profound because even as we speak so much about oneship and all that we do to try to create it and cultivate it, the scriptures make it clear that God himself is facilitating this oneship and that he has created it. Divorce is messing with what God has adhered 
together, not just what two human people have tried to achieve. What God has joined, let no one separate. I was kind of finishing my conversation with my friend Josh on the phone here this last week, and he said something great. He says it's just, you know, he's been counseling some people struggling with marriage, and he says it's just so much better to enter marriage with the understanding that divorce isn't ever an option. Because if we hold it in a back pocket as an option, we'll want to pull it out and use it. I thought that was a good word. Um, now here's the thing. Endurance is not the only sign of success in marriage, right? Because we all know people who have enduring marriages, but they're awful. <laughs> You know, we look at them, I don't want any part of that. So let's, it's not the only sign, it's a sign. Uh, I think another sign of a successful marriage is this, that we are growing in grace and humility. Uh, one illustration I heard recently about marriage is that marriage is like a rock tumbler. You guys know what these are? These kids have these little, this little engine that turns this, this little housing and inside you throw you throw these rocks and then you throw some aggregate and you just, in a little bit of fluid and you just, you let it spin for a couple of days or even weeks. And as these rocks tumble against one another and against the aggregate that's in there, eventually you pull them out and wash them off and sometimes you have a very beautiful stone in there. Um, but it is this constant abrasive churn that makes it happen. And I, friends, that's marriage. You know, anybody who's been in it for any length of time says, yeah, there is a steady churn. And the thing is, if we will allow it to have its effect on us, and we will learn from it, and we will grow in it, we really can grow in our grace and humility. And we can become more beautiful people because of it. Again, I, and I said this earlier, but too many people get into marriage and they think, oh, we have issues. We, we fight, we disagree on things. I can't believe the way they squeeze toothpaste from the tube. It's wrong, you know. It, little things and big things, and, and it's difficult, and they get, people get flustered and think, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. We have issues, and I just, the thing is, that's right. That is marriage. Having its way with you, it will surface issues, and its point is to help sanctify you into Christ-likeness, not to be issue-free bliss, that's what somebody sold you on the way in, boy, you got it wrong. It is a means by which we would grow in grace and humility. Last thing here, a sign of a healthy marriage is that we will help one another love Jesus more. Uh, if you'll turn to Matthew 22, starting at verse 23. <coughs> that same day the Sadducees who say, there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Finally, she died. <laughs> now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. This for me is easily the most mysterious passage in the scriptures. I mean, no kidding. And it, it, the first part of it 
talks about something that makes us a little bit squeamish. It's known as leveret marriage. It was the idea that a brother was to take um, his, his dead brother's wife, in a sense bring her under the protection of his household and provide offspring for her, which is, you know, a little squeamish, makes us a little squeamish. Uh, but at the very least, if we understand it, it was really the social welfare of the day. That's not the tricky part for me of the passage. It's the second part that I have a hard time with, which, says, which teaches that in a sense there will be a marriageless heaven. And this does not sit easily with me. I have a hard time understanding how it is that I could go through my life on planet Earth with Amy as my bride, developing that relationship with all that I've got for my whole life and find myself in heaven with she just as another saint there, but not as my bride. I don't understand that. I'll be honest with you, I don't really like that. That is a mystery to me that I'm most of the time not okay with. Um, But I think what it shows us is this. The end goal of our marriage is to help us love Jesus. Marriage is not the end. It's a means to the end. That we would get to the end of our life and that we would be united with our Lord on the day of the Lord. That we would sit with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That we would exalt in him for all eternity. And our spouses, our spouses are to help us to that end. Not to be that end. Marriage is a covenant of self-giving. It's made in three directions. It's entered in to achieve a God-ordained purpose. That we would make it to Christ and that we would love him more for the time we had with our spouse. Let's pray. Our Father, there's much we don't know, and we trust you for the unknown. We thank you for the gift of spouses who walk through the difficult days of life with us, not just so that we would have bliss on earth, but to help us make it to heaven with a love for Jesus that's intact. Direct our hearts now, Lord, as they need to be for each one, whether single or happily married or struggling in marriage. Direct us to the next step for what would please you. We want you to be our end goal. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.